Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Laura Barrett is a successful copywriter and content editor for a range of national publications, brands and websites. When her third son was diagnosed with a life-limiting genetic condition, cystic fibrosis, four years ago, she decided to use her writing skills to author her first book, Unconditional Love, to help guide and support other parents who receive a medical diagnosis for their child. As well as her best-selling book, Laura has also written for several newspapers and magazines to help raise awareness. This morning, we're interviewing Laura Barrett. Laura is a mum of three boys and has authored an amazing book called Unconditional Love, an empowering guide to accepting your child's diagnosis, managing long hospital stays and building your new self. And you're very welcome, Laura. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Well, thank you for coming on. Your book is truly amazing and we're very excited to feature it as part of our sort of lived experience series within Tooled Up. And just tell us a little bit about the context of your story and how you came to write this book. Sure. So yes, as you say, I have three children, three boys. And when we had our third son, when he was four days old, we were blue lighted to Great Ormond Street because he had a blocked bowel. And we actually ended up staying there for just over two months, about nine weeks it was. And during that time, they operated on him to create a stoma because they didn't know if his bowel was working properly. But actually, it transpired that he was diagnosed with the recessive genetic condition, cystic fibrosis. And this is a life-limiting condition. When people think of it, if they know anything of it, they tend to think of it to do with the lungs. But it actually affects all the organs of the body. It produces quite a thick mucus throughout the body that affects the lungs, the liver, fertility, so many areas. And there is no cure currently. So we were in the hospital for about nine weeks and then we eventually came home. So, yes, it's been a road. (laughs) Now, you mentioned being in Great Ormond Street for two months. I mean, that is so hard to imagine, Mm. particularly when you've got other children. And I know the first half of your book is a, you know, it's a really moving sort of journal chronicling the first few months of of your son's life from birth until you arrived home. And it's hard to sort of imagine what you went through during that time, the adjustment. Yes, it was fair to say the most challenging time. (laughs) You know, I had the two older boys at home. I was in hospital with Bailey and sort of obviously didn't want to leave him. Yeah, it was the trauma of everything that went on in the hospital, the longevity of it. And then just being torn apart really as a family, like we just, you know, we were all over the show. Your book actually reminded me when I was little, I used to go to school with another family and every single morning when I arrived at the house, this little boy was on top of the kitchen table and his mom, which I now know was doing physio on him. (laughs) I had no concept of what the issue was, but he had cystic fibrosis and his mother, who was a nurse, was sort of banging his back for yes. want of another term. And it, this really brought it back because I suddenly understood wow. the sort of the context in which those parents were managing that every morning and the pills he used to take. And yes. he was a good friend of mine when we were in primary school. But cystic fibrosis, I think, is something that people absolutely associate with the lungs. But mm-hmm. your book just widens out that sort of understanding of it about the condition itself. But importantly, for any parent who has a child newly diagnosed with this Mm. condition, this is like a manual for coping, isn't it? Yes. And that that was the aim. Like I wanted it to support other parents who were going through, you know, a diagnosis. Yes, a CF diagnosis, because that's what I obviously know about. But any diagnosis, really, just in terms of coping mechanisms and things. 
But I think, yes, with CF, it's about raising that awareness and it's being open, like, and not being afraid to, to talk about it and share. And, you know, I think, yeah, it's just increasing that knowledge, isn't it, across the condition, really. Let's talk about those very early days, Laura, you know, very early days when you're spending a lot of time in hospital. Can we just take you back to that time? And what advice would you give to a parent who's facing a prolonged period of residential sort of caring mm-hmm. um, in a hospital environment? Sure. I think, first of all, one of the key things for me was the journaling. It's very fast paced when you're in hospital. There's a lot going on. It's probably a lot you don't really understand if you're not medically orientated. So for me, journaling was just like a way to dump all my thoughts and emotions and feelings and everything and vent it and let it all out. When I wasn't really at a stage where I was ready to articulate it to anyone, not really even my husband, and it just really, really helped me at the end of every day to just write down everything, what happened, how I felt, and just to try and really compute everything that was going on. And I also took in a few bits and pieces, like not straight away. At, at the beginning, I was a bit of a rabbit in headlights and I was literally just sat there completely dumbfounded. But as the weeks went on, I sort of managed to pick myself up slightly and I thought, right, I'll take in some running gear. I'm going to go for a run every so often. I'm going to take in my own mug because I was like sick and tired of the plastic cups in the canteen, you know, just so I can have a decent cup of tea. Just tiny little things that really kind of just made it a bit more bearable, basically. And then also, you know, if you do have children at home, like if you have other siblings, it's about managing them as well. So I used to do a lot of online shops to ensure the family at home had food in the fridge. You know, we had friends taking around home cooked meals to help my husband out because he was still working and, you know, sort of just having a decent dinner each night, you know, was such a gift. So yeah, it was it was really trying to sort of almost take control of a situation in which you were thrust in that you never expected, that you have no control over, but finding very small ways along the way that you can control, even if they're so insignificant, you know, it just makes you feel that tiny bit more normal in a very abnormal situation. And the first few weeks of a baby's life can be challenging and sent everyone's feeling emotional and, you know, there's a lot to adjust to, you know, for anyone. But in your case, you know, the sort of when to feed your baby, what was happening to him, that was all sort of taken over by the medical team. And that must have been really challenging and a big adjustment. It was, absolutely. And it was crazy because I couldn't mother the child I was with because the medics were doing everything and I wasn't allowed to feed him. He had no nappy to change because he had a stoma. So, you know, there's just nothing I could do for him. But then equally, I couldn't mother the other two because I wasn't with them. They were under the care of friends and family, you know, most of the time. So I was just, I just had three children that I wasn't mothering. I just wasn't doing anything. I remember I just used to sit in the chair next to Bailey and just watch on as people came in and did obs. They came in and replaced his drip. They came in and did a blood check. I was just like a bystander. And it took a really long time to even have the capacity to try and step up and be a mother, if I'm honest, because I just was just completely blindsided by the whole thing. I think there's this you were shell shocked essentially weren't yes, you I think definitely yeah. I think it was just I just could not believe any of it was evolving you know it was just so unthinkable so yes you're right you know the only thing I managed to keep structure with which gave my days some purpose was I was adamant I was going to express for Bailey so I could try and breastfeed as and when he could feed again so that became quite a a thing in which I sort of that was to me that was something I could do for him you know I could I could be in control of that I that's the one thing that I could do as his mother there was a point in the book where you describe feeling very empowered when you called a sort of an interdisciplinary meeting and making a decision about his care and it sounded like that was a moment where you felt a lot of control and Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that made you feel and what advice you would give parents in liaising with those medical teams Mm. who are quite clearly trying to get on with the job, but at the same time, you know, you want to feel like you are also in some modicum of control. Sure. So, and I think that's it. You you know, when you first go in, you're, you know, you're shell-shocked, like you say, and you just let the medics take over. And absolutely, you know, I had the 
top specialists working on my son and I was so fortunate for that and felt so blessed for that and I wasn't about to you know question or you know disapprove anything they were doing they were there to help him but I do think at the beginning I just let them do what they wanted but then as time went on as I grew in strength as I sort of managed to normalize this situation I did suddenly realize that I am his mother yes they're the medics and he's under medical care and he needs that medical intervention but I am his mother. So you've got to be their voice. And I think you're the only person that sees everything that goes on in that room. And because for us, when we went in, we were part of a surgical team because they didn't know he had CF. And then he was diagnosed with CF. So we were on a surgical ward. So we were working with the surgical team and with the CF team. And it was getting those two teams to liaise. So I think I had to take a point where I was that middle man, as it were, or middle woman. And I was like, look, we need to work much more collaboratively here. And we need to, you know, really get you all in one room and have a proper conversation. And I think as a parent, it's finding, it will just happen organically, I think. You'll know when you're sort of strong enough and knowing enough to sort of stand up and take that lead with the medics. I have no medical knowledge whatsoever. So I was completely out of my depth in that way. So, yeah, I think it's just, knowing that you are that child's voice and if you feel that you need to say or ask something that's in their best interest then you're absolutely within your right to do so because you are still their parent even though you have relinquished a lot of control a lot of parenting ability you are the only one that is going to speak for that child and you need to find the strength to do that and I'm not saying to sort of do it in a confrontational way it's just to whether it's to gain an understanding of what they're doing and why or saying, is that the only option? Is there another option? Or is there another, you know, way of doing this or another opinion we could gain or whatever it might be. And it's having the strength of character to do that, I think. So beyond that sort of stage of being completely shell-shocked and, and things just taking over, it's it's getting that control back, becoming an advocate for your child. Absolutely. And, and remembering that you are still the most important person in his life. Yeah. And that, you know, just navigating that relationship. In terms of other relationships, how on earth did you manage, you know, the phone calls from concerned relatives, friendships? you know, your relationship with your partner, he was obviously probably at home minding the other children. For other people in this situation, what is your best advice on maintaining those other relationships in a way that feels okay for you going through such a difficult time? I think at a time like this, you have to be quite selfish, you have to do things definitely on your terms. So if you're receiving a barrage of phone calls and messages and things, and you've got stuff going on in a hospital just leave your phone like just deal with what needs dealing with at the hospital and I used to always just sit and reply to my messages in the evening when things had calmed down all the doctors had gone home Bailey had gone to sleep and I just used to find time then to do it and I was very careful about who I let in I didn't just let everyone in not everyone knew what we were in there and it wasn't really till we came home that everyone knew that we'd even been in there so I was very careful about who I let into our world there had to be the right person And I think in terms of, we had loads of visitors. We were really lucky. We we had a lot of guests. That was wonderful because that really broke up the day. And I think in terms of that relationship with your other children and your partner, it's very much a, a balancing act. So we had to let the children in because they had to see where we were and what was going on. But I was very careful about when they came, how long they came for, what we told them. I never lied to them. I just kept it very simple, very childlike. And then I would come home once a week. I always made the effort to come home once a week to see the other two because yes, Bailey needed me and he was in hospital, but I had three children and I couldn't just completely leave the others. So I would definitely say if you've got other children, you you need to find a window of time to come back and see them and, and give them some of yourself. And then in terms of your partner, that's an absolute juggling act because when he was at the hospital, I would come home. When he was at home, I would be in the hospital. So we never really saw each other. Like our marriage was almost just, you know, we were separated for nine weeks. There was just a couple of occasions where I got my mum to come and sit with Bailey and that enabled me to go home and Kev also be at home. And then we would have the evening together. But I think over the nine week period, I think we did that two or three times. So it was challenging. It was really challenging and it's an absolute balancing act. Did you get any advice at the time from, I don't know, the psychologist in the hospital or nurses about how to answer your other children's questions about what was going on? 
we did the, the support at Great Ormond Street Hospital was amazing both the support for me the support for the children exactly what you're saying how to articulate to the children what was going on where they gave us sort of you know little books and brochures to read with the boys when Bailey had a stoma it was very much like they gave us uh, like a teddy with a stoma on and they gave us a book and we could read that to the children and it was absolutely amazing I mean the, the support that we got we were so fortunate so I definitely think you need to give them some information because the not knowing for them will be worse than just a few childlike facts. So not make it too daunting. We really played it down. We gave them the, the key information they needed to know that Bailey's bottom was stuck and his tummy wasn't working properly and he was just getting a little bit of help for that and then he would come home eventually. So, you know, they knew what, what it was, but it was very, very basic. One of the most poignant aspects of your book is the way in which you describe that overwhelming sense of guilt about his condition. I'm sure so many people have said to you, why would you feel guilty? You know, it's genetics. You know, it doesn't really help, does it? But I really felt how that I had such empathy for you, you know, for that dark cloud that you described. You thought, oh my goodness, you know, this is something that this child has ended up with, whether it's because of genetics or not, you know, you write beautifully about learning to accept those feelings and yeah. turning it into compassion for yourself even and stepping into that strength. Can we just talk about that? Because there are so many parents I know in situations, mm-hmm. you know, parents with children with all sorts of different conditions. And I think it's so easy for people to say to them, why would you feel guilty and dismiss that? But Talk us through how how you worked through that. Yeah, I mean, I think as a parent, you always feel guilty. You know, you could be with your child and they could fall off a climbing frame and scratch their leg or break their leg and you would feel guilty because the one thing you're meant to do as a parent is keep them safe, keep them well, you know, make sure that they're all okay. And when you receive a diagnosis, you haven't done that. And there is a sense of guilt. And I, it, it's one of the most challenging parts because you essentially have made that child you've if it's a genetic condition you've given them that gene and with guilt you like to pass the blame on someone there's no one else to blame other you know and you blame yourself and you know people can say to you a hundred times over you shouldn't feel guilty it's not your fault you didn't know and there is no point saying that and I just think you as the parent have to accept you feel guilty it is literally so heavy and so dark in those early days, that guilt, it just absolutely consumes you. And I think that you have to just sit with it and accept that it's there. And you, you know, trying to fight it is almost more exhausting than just accepting it. And you have to move forwards, like with it, it's going to be with you. Like, it was so awful those first few months. And you know, for years after. But now, of course, if I sit down and I think, right, Bailey's got CF and it's because of me, it's because of the genes we've given him, of course, I feel so guilty about it. But what sort of happened for me, and I wish I'd known this at the time, which is why I share it, is as we sort of got back into the rhythm of life once we got home, and I could see how we could still have this happy life. It was just an altered version of the vision I'd had before. And what happened was these new memories came and, you know, fun-filled times started to build as, you know, we worked together as a family of five and we generated new memories and, you know, new happy times. And the guilt sort of, as the happiness grew, the guilt diminished. Now, I'm not saying it ever goes, but what I'm saying is it, it wasn't sort of my dominant daily emotion. It wasn't with me every single waking second like it had been. I realized that we still had an amazing life. It was just very different to the one I'd seen when I was pregnant. And you're always going to feel guilty. And I just think if you just accept that you feel guilty and move forwards with that and create all this happiness and create all these new memories, it will fade, but it is going to take an awful lot of time. And it's going to take an awful lot of sort of work on yourself almost just in that acceptance. And I think a lot of it helped by writing again that that journaling really helped me just to put everything down and vent everything out again it allowed me to sort of not relinquish the guilt but just cope with it I suppose 
and, and presumably make sense of it, making sense of what has happened. Definitely, definitely. And that writing can help with that. Definitely. I think as well, when, when you've got a little baby on the bed, your tubes coming in and out and nurses and, you know, it's the, the fear that they will suffer that is very, very overwhelming, isn't it? And mm. as that child grows and develops and you realize they are happy, they're enjoying themselves, you know, they have the, you know, I think, as you say, that sort of guilt just dissipated slightly because yeah. you've realized they're actually, you know, enjoying themselves and enjoying yeah. what's around them and able to do lots of lovely things. Exactly. And you can't imagine a normal life when they're lying there in that hospital with all those tubes. Like you say, you can't imagine them having any sense of normality as they grow older. But once you realize that they do and they hit all their milestones and they're out in the garden kicking a ball around or whatever, but you can't envisage that when you're in that hospital room. And so it does, it just takes time, which is kind of the hardest part really, because, you know, you never know how long it's going to take. In terms of visiting, given you were there for two months, what sort of advice would you give to friends and family who like, should they visit? Should they ask you, can they visit? You know, obviously COVID changed a lot of the visiting Mm. rules in general, but what should they bring, you know, specifically for a child with cystic fibrosis? What, what advice would you give in that regard? Yeah, sure. I mean, like you say, we had so many visitors and they were my absolute saving grace. And I can't imagine having to have gone through what we went through without any visitors. So how people have managed during COVID, I have no idea. Like, I just don't know how I would have done it because it was just, it really broke up our day. And I think when you have visitors, like I say, I think you need to make sure they're the right person for you at that point in time. So, you know, they're going to say or do the right thing. And I think as well, just be really honest with them. Like if you want to sit and chat about the situation and tell them absolutely everything that's happened, then great. But if you want something else in your mind, if you want them to talk about some mundane gossip or, you know, some TV show they watch, then tell them that. And and you can then use them as like a bit of a resource because you can get from them what you want. And I think, you know, try and go for a walk with them, what have you, just to really sort of use them as almost like a coping tool. And don't be afraid to cancel, like things evolve really quickly in hospitals and they can change, you know, they can do a 180 in a matter of minutes. So if you've arranged for someone to come and then suddenly the situation changes and it's just not appropriate for them to visit, you just cancel. And I think that's what I mean. You have to be quite selfish because you can't be worrying about, oh, I've arranged this. I'm going to hurt their feelings or disrupt their plans. You've got to just work with what's working for you at that moment in time. And if that changes, then you change it. And I think for the people visiting, I think any offering of fresh food or homemade food is always a welcome gift. I wouldn't bring flowers because they're seldom allowed. And I think when, as the guest, as the visitor, again, like be open with them and say, you know, do you want to talk to me about this or do you want a breath of fresh air and some silly conversation and for me to make you laugh? Like, and so ask them what they need and want. And yes, I think in, again, like in terms of if they cancel, they cancel maybe check in with them before you go say you know I know we've arranged for me to come up today is it still convenient and if you haven't already visited but you're wanting like you feel like you want to visit say like would you like me to visit or would you rather I sort of just called you this evening instead so we can have a chat on the phone and and just really ask them openly what is going to work for them at this time because it's such an unknown entity for all parties things change very quickly so yeah I just think you know just that open communication really helps with when it comes to visitors and I also wouldn't visit for too long I I think an hour tops is kind of for me personally because it just was a bit too much otherwise especially if there's lots going on it sounds quite sensible to sort of pre-agree that so you could say listen I can't wait to see you at the hospital but would you mind staying for 30 minutes or Mm. an an Mm. hour like you, you can be prescriptive yeah I think what you've described is everybody being very flexible in terms of what the family needs. And yeah. so everybody not being, you know, sensitive about it or, you know, you don't need any more guilt, you know, yes. if, yes. if you have yeah. to cancel a visit. Yeah. And I think in stories like this, there's always people always come across like an angel, someone who's amazing, who says the right thing at the right time. Did you come across people like that that were real game changers in terms of your actual coping? Yes. I mean, like I say, I was so fortunate to have so many friends and family visit. And, you know, I called upon the the person that I needed at that time. So I had like one friend, she's in the medical world. So if I needed some 
key information that I knew was going to be accurate, I would actually ask her to visit. Or, you know, if I just needed my mum, I would just get her to visit. I, you know, like I say, there were some people that wanted to visit, but I didn't set that up because I knew that they wouldn't be the right person for me at that time. So I think ultimately you have to just focus on yourself because, you know, you're going through such a hard time. You need to just focus on yourself. You worked with a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, I think Lisa Duplessis, that you mentioned in the sort of support chapters within your book. Tell us about the coping mechanisms that you sort of picked up during that sort of contact with her and what other coping mechanisms? You've mentioned journaling, but what else could be really beneficial? Mm. So, yeah, it was amazing. CBT was absolutely a game changer for me and something I would highly recommend to everyone. And literally, she was the best. She just, the work that we did together was so amazing for my sort of healing process and moving forwards so I was already doing a few of the coping mechanisms in the hospital but I didn't actually realize it so like I say the journaling um, but that just derived from the fact my sister gave me a notepad at the start of it and from there I used that to you know sort of brain dump everything at the end of the day but that is an amazing coping mechanism and something that they recommend and also obviously exercise which again was something I was doing in there just because I felt the need and the want. So, but again, that that is a, a massive coping tool. So when I actually had the CBT with Lisa after we got out of hospital, there were some really amazing things she told me. So one of the things that I think is so important is not to hide anything from the children, especially Bailey, and then say one day when you think he's old enough, you sit him down and tell him he's got cystic fibrosis and, you know, this, that and the other. Her advice is literally just to drip feed it throughout the days of life. And just if he's got a question, you answer it so that there's never a point at which he remembers learning he has cystic fibrosis and the, and the same for the, his brothers. So say, for example, he's taking his creon, which he has to take when he eats. He said to us, you know, oh, but... Harry and Milo don't need to take Creon. Why do I? And so we would just say, because you have cystic fibrosis and they don't. And that's it. So he knows he has cystic fibrosis. So it's something that we've literally drip fed throughout the course of time. So he won't ever remember not knowing he has it. And that for me was a massive, it was just such a useful piece of information because I think I would have done the complete opposite. So that was amazing. And then the other thing that was another coping tool that she taught me, which was really useful, was I really struggled with the trauma of everything that went on when we were blue-lighted into Great Ormond Street, everything that went on in Great Ormond Street, the blood transfusions, the genetics tests, the stoma, the surgeries, everything that happened in there. I just couldn't talk about it without breaking down. And so the advice was to literally write it down, write it down again, write everything down again, read it, reread it, and you're just normalizing it. And so you don't feel the emotions associated with it. And so you become almost, it just becomes like such a normal thing that you say or read. And the same for even the words cystic fibrosis. I couldn't say them without, I either didn't say it at all, or I would say it and then completely break down. And I had to get to the point where I could tell someone he had this without breaking down. And I couldn't get past the fact that if I told someone he had it, that was all that they would see. I would sort of brand him with that label. And it seems so ironic to even say that now because I've written this book and it's all about his story with CF. And so I don't know, maybe I have branded him with it, but I really hope not because that's not what I want out of it. But what she made you do was write down a whole list of all his attributes. So blue eyes, blonde hair, love sports, you know, all his looks, all his personalities, all his everything. Like He has two brothers. He's the youngest brother, all the things. And I hadn't written cystic fibrosis in my list because I just thought then that literally overrides all the other parts of him. And that's all anyone will see. And so she just really made me see that that is just one tiny gene or two genes of his makeup. Everything else is still there. It's just a tiny little factor in his being. And it's just, it sounds ridiculous when I say it, but it just really helped me accept that that is an extra little part of him and it wasn't all he was. So it's just things like that, really normalizing everything, really going over and over everything. Yeah, so they they were definitely some key takeaways and then just the carrying on journaling as well. 
So I think I'd stop for a while when I got home and she was like, just carry on journaling, just make sure, you know, you carry on with that coping mechanism and the running as well. But I mean, there's so many and a lot of it is all the sort of self-care that is so popular today that we know we should all do, like the meditating, the you time, the focusing on yourself, the, you know, all, all the stuff that we need and should do but doing it even more so, the gratitude, everything like that. And being conscious of, I always say to people, you know, having a coping menu as a family is important because you can pick and choose, you know, in times of crisis, it's hard to remember how to cope. And yeah. I think, you know, having that list of things like setting goals, exercise routine, problem solving, eating well, sleeping well, positive affirmations, visualization, meditation, gratitude, laughing, talking, screaming into a pillow. I mean, your book, you know, it has the full menu listed or contained within it. And I think that's incredibly important because people just forget, don't they, that they do have options in yeah. times of crisis. And you just sort of were able to take time to sort of articulate that and able to express and lean into things that have actually worked well Definitely. for you. And it's finding the right one for you and your family and your setup and your situation. And I think working through them and seeing which one has has the most impact. And actually, the other tool was to one of the things was, you know, if we got readmitted, the, the fear of that sort of going back to square one and the situation we were in. And again, one of the things we did that we worked on was to create that schedule. So we had a schedule in place. So if Bailey got readmitted for two weeks for IV antibiotics, I would know who to ask for childcare, I would know when to order the food shop, I would know how to piece that two week time frame together so that we all were in the right place at the right time and doing what we needed to do. And then having something at the end of that to really celebrate as a family, which was like a, a meal in the curry house. And so once I'd written all that down and got that in place, I realized that I'd just done nine weeks, of course I could do another two. And so once you've got that plan in place, and I think that schedule, a plan, an agenda, whatever it is, just knowing what you're going to do, you know, a childcare rotor, whatever it is, and that really helped as well. Because sometimes the thought of things is much worse than the reality of it so yeah so that was another big big tip just to have a plan for you know if you go back in a sort of a crisis plan or a exactly. plan b and you know that whatever happens that safety net plan is there and exactly, will work yeah, yeah definitely can we talk a little bit about for parents listening, you know, who are new to this journey of managing cystic fibrosis on a daily basis? You know, reading your book, I learned so much, you know, that, but in particular about minimizing contact with certain types of bacteria. So mm -hmm. I remember reading that stagnant water, mud, you know, these sorts of things. My goodness, you know, during COVID, I don't know how you, uh, the the adjustment the rest of the world had to make. Well, you were already conscious yeah. so much of that sort of hygiene around us. So tell us a sort of a little bit of the do's and don'ts if you're parenting a child with cystic fibrosis and things that potentially other people may not know. Sure. So, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. During COVID, everything that we were all doing as a, as a world is the way we live everyday life with CF. So for us during COVID, it was actually easier because everywhere was cleaner than it's ever been. People were standing back, they were hand gelling, they were wearing masks. So, you know, it was easier than it's ever been to have a child with CF, which is so ironic. But that is how we live everyday life. So exactly as you're saying, so stagnant water breeds a bacteria that's so detrimental to them, as does mud. So hand washing is just absolutely paramount for children with CF. Things like jacuzzis, saunas, butterfly houses where they have like water misting, all of that again is really bad because it's warm, recycled water that's got a really bad bacteria called Pseudomonas. So they're an absolute no-go. You wouldn't ever go in a hot tub or a butterfly house if you have CF. Lakes, things like that, things where there's, you know, lots of stagnant water on lakes. I'm just trying to think what else. I mean, they're the main things really. So like tea towels. So you'd wash your tea towels more regularly. You would replace their toothbrush more often because that's a breeding round. You sterilize, you know, all their physiotherapy equipment. You sterilize it even though, you know, he's nearly four years old or even when you're, you know, an adult, you still sterilize a lot of stuff just to really make sure everything's clean. Like throwing a stupid amount of Dettol down sinks and toilets just to make sure there's there's no bacteria harboring. And then as you touched on, you know, it is their daily physio. And then the reason that you do that is to clear the stuck mucus. Now, as you recounted at the start of the call, your friend used to have their back patted. 
And that is how they used to do it. But these days, they bring them up to be very much more independent because thankfully, the life expectancy is longer than it used to be due to modern day medicine. They make sure that the people are independent in their physiotherapy care. So they use really amazing equipment where they can do their blowing themselves. It's all about blowing and exercise and really getting up all the mucus from the lungs and clearing their, their system. And they do that through um, like resistance blowing. So they blow into a machine that's got resistance and things like that. So yes, yeah, so I think the key things for care with cystic fibrosis is definitely avoiding those areas of stagnant water bacteria, washing their hands, definitely hand gel galore, really keeping the house clean. And then yeah, the, the physiotherapy. And then lots of people with CF will also take Creon when they eat because they're they're pancreas insufficient. So they have to replace the enzyme that the pancreas produces to absorb the food and grow well and strong. I think in my lifetime, you know, since I in childhood watching that little boy with cystic fibrosis, things have changed so much in terms of drug mm. development, haven't they, in this area? And it's easy to sort of look up things on the news and go, oh my goodness, you know, everything is, you know, advancing so quickly. Is that a sort of a myth? Or do you feel excited about some of the, the big developments that have been featured in the media around this disease recently? No, it's absolutely not a myth. It is crazy. The difference in four years from when Bailey was diagnosed to the prognosis today is unbelievable. And if you'd have told me that when we were sat in Great Ormond Street, I never would have believed you. So when he was born, there was no treatment for Bailey. There was a drug around called Orcambi, but firstly, it wasn't available in the UK anyway. Secondly, he wasn't eligible for it because with CF, there's thousands of different genes for CF. And the main gene, the most popular gene, both genes had to be the Delta gene. And Bailey's wasn't, he only had one. And so to have Orcambi, you needed to have both. So he wasn't eligible for it, whether or not it was available in the UK. So there was nothing available for Bailey. Fast forward three years, there's now a new drug called Caftrio. It's also, it's known as Trikafta as well, Caftrio. And that, you only need one Delta gene for it to work on you and for you to be eligible for it. So we've gone from SATs receiving a diagnosis four years ago where there is no treatment available, there is no cure available, nothing, and it looked quite bleak, to now they now can take Caftrio when they're six. So Bailey's now four, he turns four next week. He will be eligible for Caftrio when he's six years old. And the feedback that's coming through from the people taking Caftrio is phenomenal. They're having purges to clear all the mucus up from their lungs. Their lung function is increasing. They can take a full gasp of air. I mean, it just sounds like a dream. I mean, it just sounds like a total miracle. Now, that drug can help around 90% of the CF population. It's not going to cure them. But it will certainly, you know, increase their well-being throughout their life and hopefully increase the life expectancy of people with CF. There are, of course, 10% of people who don't have that gene and this will not work for them. So there is a lot of funding going into like sort of genetic research where, you know, like genetic therapy and where they can literally go in and replace or fix the faulty gene. So that would cure CF altogether. So the future for CF is so much more hopeful and optimistic. And we have a generation of people with CF now who have so much hope and so much on offer, whereas before that there was nothing, there was nothing. And the life expectancy was so poor. And, you know, way back when people were told not to even register their children for school because they might not make it that long. And now I think to date, the uh, life expectancy is around 48, 50, which is really good. But obviously, it's not, you know, as it should be. So hopefully with Caftrio and with all this genetic development as well, it will not just prolong life expectancy, but eventually I feel hopeful that there will be a cure through genetic 
advancements, definitely. Absolutely. Well, the little boy that I went to school with, you know, he's now 50, so oh, <laughs> and <great>. thriving. <laughs> so it was always, you know, I mean, we owe so much to these drug scientists oh, and so it's just much. incredibly exciting and look what's happened even in that short period of time since yeah. Bailey was born it's amazing Absolutely. for people listening we know that social media accounts can be really helpful for families what would you say are the most important accounts or websites where you feel like every parent supporting a child with cystic fibrosis should know about Laura sure I think you're right social media is helpful it can be helpful I think you need to be careful what you take on, you don't want to compare your journey with someone else's if their child has CF as well, because everyone has such different journeys with CF. So I think that's something to be really mindful of. And I think for me, I couldn't tap into social media at all for a very long time. I didn't want it on my scroll. I didn't want it on my feed. I had to prepare myself and go in knowingly into a situation. If I was just merrily getting on with my day and then something popped up on my feed, it would throw me entirely for the rest of the day. So I do think it's helpful, but I also think that people should be very mindful and aware of it because yeah it it can can send you either way but I think definitely the CF Trust is the main website you should refer to for accurate information there is so much information on there and if there isn't something on there that you need then message them because they're so prompt with their messages that or call them because they've got such an amazing support team. So really do go to them. Don't just Google something because you don't know what you're going to find. Just don't go down that road. Either speak to the specialist or go to the CF Trust. There are some amazing social media accounts as well of people with CF. So what I did was I followed people with CF who are adults who were totally inspiring because I needed to find a role model and an inspiration for Bailey to look at when he gets older and when he has to be presented with certain bits of information that are quite hard to swallow. And I needed someone that he could look up to. So there's a guy in Ireland called Ben Mudge, who's absolutely phenomenal. There's a gentleman called Mark Cottrell, who, again, he's just amazing. There's a lady called uh, Sophie Grace Jones. And all these people, what they have in common is they work out. They are so fit and active and exercise is the best medicine for anyone with cystic fibrosis. So you have to do your physiotherapy, but then you want to be running and swimming and, you know, playing football and doing all the sports you possibly can to get that cardio up. And these people all have that in common and they're just really amazing people to watch. There are lots of parents out there as well with children with cystic fibrosis who are very heavily present on social media so you can tap into those. But again, like I mentioned, it's just being mindful of that, that comparison. Oh, their child is well and mine's in hospital. Or what did I do wrong? What didn't I do that they did? But then there's loads of benefits to it. You know, there's lots of, well, that's exactly how I felt. And oh, what, what steam cleaner do you recommend? Because we're all sort of neurotic about cleaning. And so you can get really great advice with that. And I think if there's anything that's come out of writing this book, It's the CF community and how it can be so isolating in your thoughts. But actually, by being so raw and open in my book, so many people have come to me and said, it's literally like reading my own mind. It's like reading my own thoughts. And I thought I was the only one that felt that. And just letting people know that, you know, we all feel the same. And so I'm hoping that as well as giving the support and the advice, it can take away some of the isolation that parents feel when they receive that diagnosis. So yeah, the CF community is an exceptionally strong one. If you just literally type in the hashtag CF or, you know, cystic fibrosis, you will find most of the accounts and then you can follow. And then obviously you can unfollow if it's not serving you, if it's, if you find that it isn't, I I dip in and out. I go through times where I follow lots of people and then actually I find I have to step away from it because it becomes too much. It becomes too consuming. Laura, you've talked about finding, which you've done, role models and inspiration for Bailey. You must be so proud of yourself in terms of your contribution to this field. I mean, you've this is something you knew nothing about. And now you are an expert through that lived experience. I'm sure your husband's so proud of you as well. Oh, bless you. That's really sweet. Well, I think he is. <laughs> you know, men, they don't say much, do they? But yeah, it's not, I, I am proud. And I just, you know, it was never about, accolades or it it was about serving a purpose and the purpose was that I didn't know anything about CF I didn't know how you got it I didn't know what happened when you had it I just knew nothing and I think because I was so 
blindsided by the whole thing. I didn't have anything to tap into. I didn't know where to go. Yes, I had the CF Trust. Yes, I had a support team, but I was just so lost. And I just thought if I could write this and share this and just support even one or two parents in their new journey, then that was enough for me. You know, it's not about, like I say, accolades or making money. It's a nonprofit thing. It's just to help other people through the hardest and darkest time that you could imagine. I mean, I really, I really hope they can sell this book in the hospital as well, because presumably anyone whose child is diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, this is like a manual for coping. Yeah, exactly. And that, that is the aim. I'm still working with some of the hospitals to sort of, you know, work through the logistics of it. It's not always as simple as you think it will be. But yes, ultimately, that is the aim to have them in hospitals, like free copies that, you know, I will gift to the hospitals and they will just have them there as a resource for parents coming in with their children. But equally, yes, exactly, like bookshops within or near hospitals to have it stocked in there as well. So yeah, I do, you know, it's just a case of getting it out as far and wide as possible, but most importantly, into the right hands of the people that need and want it. So yeah, just so it can serve its purpose. Laura, do you think it's sensitive of people to buy this book for a friend whose child has just been diagnosed or do you think it's better for the parent to sort of be nudged towards it themselves you know that is such a great question I think you could probably say I've seen or heard of this book you know I thought it might be beneficial to you would you like me to send you the link or should I just send you a copy or you know if you have no interest at all then that's fine because I think that person has to be ready to receive so I remember when I was in hospital the consultant gave me it was like a little booklet all about CF and that booklet sat on my bedside table in the hospital for over a week I I couldn't bring myself to open it I couldn't bring myself to read it I wanted nothing to do with it basically and so I wasn't in a place and I had to get myself into a place where I was ready to even open it up. So I think it would probably be the same with this book. And I think they would need to be ready to read and receive. So I think it would probably be just as we mentioned with the visits, just really communicate with them. Just say, look, I've heard of this really good book. It might be helpful to you. Would you like more information on it? Would you like me to send you a copy? Whatever. And just ask them. Don't just you know land it on their lap, I don't think. Laura, for parents who've got children with other conditions that are might be similar but not the same as cystic fibrosis, do you think it would be a useful book as well in terms of the emotional journey? A hundred percent. And that was what I wanted to create with the book. Although it's obviously very embedded in cystic fibrosis, like the stories around cystic fibrosis, but I know for a fact that lots of those emotions and feelings would be the same, whatever the diagnosis. And then the support guides at the back of the nine support guides, only one of them is actually CF specific. All the others are very general. The coping mechanisms, the journaling, the managing the guilt, the managing the long hospital stays, tips on expressing if you're, you know, not able to breastfeed anymore if you're with a baby. They're all completely general. So that's what I was trying to do with the book. I wanted to serve more than the CF community. I wanted to serve anyone going through a diagnosis because I know that the core feelings and the core principles to heal are the same no matter what it is and laura tell us a little bit how people can actually practically buy the book where is it in stock sure at the minute it's on amazon globally so literally just type it into amazon and they'll send it to you and then like i say i'm currently working with the hospitals and hospital shops to get it in there but at the minute it's on amazon globally And last question, in terms of when it comes to schooling, have you been anticipating, you know, how you're going to work with the school in partnership? I think a lot of parents are anxious about, you know, when children go to school with a condition like this, but presumably there are systems in place and, you know, relationships with the school nurse and school nurses are very adept at dealing with these sorts of things. Is that something on your radar now? Yes, very much so. Um, It's a great point because, Bailey actually goes to the nursery of the school where his brothers are. So he's actually already at school, but in like the nursery younger years area. So we went through that phase last September. And you're absolutely right. It's a massive point for parents because you've been completely in control of their care until that time. And then you're handing over that care to the teachers and the school and you're completely 
relying on them to do exactly what they need to do and what you're asking them to do. And I was so wary and so nervous and anxious, exactly like you say, but the specialist team will liaise with the school. So we had like a a conference call with Bailey's care team, his teachers and myself. And together we all spoke openly about what was needed. We created a plan and they absolutely know what he can do, what he can't do. And they also have someone at the school who helps him at lunchtime with his crayon while he's eating. So and I never, ever dreamt that we would get to what we were nearly at the end. We've got six weeks, seven weeks left of the academic year. And I never dreamt we would get to this point without Bailey having to go in for IV antibiotics. I really thought that this would be a year where he wouldn't have a great year. And he has been on one course of oral antibiotics and that's it. So it's just been amazing. And obviously everyone's journey will be different. It might be that some people do start school and they have a really rough year, but he's handled that exposure really well. It may be helped because he's got brothers actually, but it's a really anxious time. You're right. And you are relinquishing that control, but I think you just need to be really clear with your child's teachers and anyone else who's part of their care during the day and really write up a concise plan and get your care team involved so that they can absolutely it kind of gives it an element of importance like as soon as you get someone on from the hospital they really prick their ears up and make sure that they're on their a-game so I think that's been wonderful but yeah from my personal experience despite all the angst building up to it it's been a really positive experience and we've had a, a really great year and Bailey's thrived with being there to be honest. And does Bailey, tell us a little bit about him. Does he enjoy being in nursery? Is he enjoying making friends and playing with all his toys? Yeah. Oh, he's just lovely. He's just amazing. He's just, yeah, he's just amazing. He just lives life to the utter max. And obviously he doesn't really understand. He knows, but he doesn't understand. And he just loves life. He loves school. He loves doing all his, like, running around the playground. He's got great friends. He... He just doesn't stop. He just, he just <laughs> loves life. He just, he's so funny. And he's just basically always trying to keep up with his brothers. So he'll just do what they do. Oh, I think I read a little bit somewhere in your book. He said he wanted to be a rugby player. He, he has does. his rugby top on, his scrum hat, <laughs> his bag, ready at the front door. It sounds such a lovely image that I had yeah. of him, you know, standing at the door wanting to get stuck in. So listen, Laura, you're an amazing woman. You're an amazing Thank mother, you. a great inspiration. And hopefully everyone listening to this will be able to flag or signpost other parents to your book, Unconditional Love, an empowering guide to accept your child's diagnosis, managing long hospital stays and building your new self. All the very best, Laura, with the book. I know 20% of the profits go to the Cystic Fibrosis Trust, which is also incredibly kind of you as well. Um, So good luck with it. And please stay in touch with us and come back and tell us all about Bailey and what he's been getting up to. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Take care. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.